As we turn our attention to God's word, we're going to continue our study through the letters of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And we finished up 1st Thessalonians a few weeks ago, and Pastor Ben very helpfully introduced us to 2nd Thessalonians last week. And I just want to mention, sort of to piggyback off of what Scott said during his prayer, as we turn our attention to God's word, uh, I'm going to read the passage and I'm going to pray, but I just want to put out a special plea to you this morning. That as we pray, don't make the prayer a spectator sport. You are welcome, and in fact, encouraged to be praying along with me. And I would say, especially this morning, there, there is a, a certain joy and beauty to the truth that God has for us in this passage, but there is also a heaviness as we wrestle with suffering and persecution and what God was doing for those believers in that end among us. And so I just plead with you as I pray, please pray as well. Let me read what Paul had to say to these believers. I'm going to, it's hard to know where to break some of these passages. And so I'm going to dip back into a few of the verses Ben Bechtel read last week, but read through verse 3 all the way through the end of the chapter. I invite you to follow along with me on the screen or in your Bible. Paul Timothy, it was Paul Silvanus and Timothy write to this church in Thessalonica. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and the faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Invite you to pray with me now. Heavenly Father, there are circumstances in our lives that often conspire to make us feel more acutely. Come, Lord Jesus, even so, come. And suffering and persecution, as this church was experiencing so many years ago and as your church throughout time has continued to experience these same things we echo that prayer at the end of the book of revelation come lord jesus but between that day and this day may you fill us with hope that you are indeed coming
even as we study this passage in particular. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was interviewing to be one of your pastors some five years ago, almost six here in the fall, after I preached, we had a a congregational meeting where everybody asked questions they thought would be helpful and getting to know me and discerning whether it would be a good fit. And from the back of a sanctuary, a man raised his hand. A few of you might remember this. And he asked how many funerals I had officiated and how much experience I had with suffering people. I told the church and the man briefly about my grandfather. If I had told you at the time that my grandfather had recently passed away then, then that would have been true, but it wouldn't have been the full story. He actually took his own life. And when I got the call from my mother, I drove two hours north to Phoenix to go sit with my grandmother and aunts and uncles, and my grandfather had been dying from cancer at the time. And very few of my family members On that side especially are Christians, so I ended up officiating the funeral service. And under a pavilion at the National Memorial Cemetery in Arizona, as a veteran played taps on his trumpet, I attempted to honor God and my grandfather and comfort our grieving family. At first... As this man in the back of the sanctuary asked this question about my experience with suffering people and officiating funerals, I sort of thought it was a little bit of a dig at my age. (laughs) And it might have been. But I also realized, and especially in hindsight, that this man was also dying of cancer and did so not long after I arrived to be one of your pastors. Relentless suffering can make your mind go to dark places. It was true for this church in Thessalonica, and it's true for us. A few years ago, I was undergoing some severe and very mysterious health challenges. I lost a ton of weight, got sick one, two, four days a month, and then it was four or five days a week. And most of that is largely behind me now, but I can tell you in the lowest of lows, as I laid on my bedroom floor or the bathroom floor, there were times when my mind went to dark places. Some of you know this as well. I took just a few minutes to list things as pastors of this church that we're aware of, that we're praying about when we gather as leaders. And, And the list was a doozy. Just quickly jotting it down. Some of us have kidney failure. Two that I know of, that we know of, recently lost their fathers. One of our former members recently went into hospice care. Another has had back surgery and because of age and other complications has had to move away and isn't fellowshipping with us regularly in the same way. I think of two women here at our church that have recently undergone divorces and one of them I think of can't go back near home because of fear of physical danger from her extended family. There are miscarriages, MS, Parkinson's, and cancer. There's an adult parent who desperately wants to help his adult child, but it seems like Humpty Dumpty, no one knows how to put her back together again. 
And in these dark moments, our minds, even our Christian minds, formed by the gospel, shaped by the word of the God, can go to dark places. Am I doing something wrong, Lord? Does God know? Does he care? Could he even do about it, anything about it if he wanted to? And so on. The questions come. But, but, it's into this kind of darkness and other kinds of darkness that Paul shines the hope of the second coming. Jesus is coming again, he says, quote, to be glorified in his saints, verse 10. Jesus is coming again, Paul says. Now, that's been Paul's theme throughout 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, but it's also specifically true in this passage that this is his hope. As we get into the specifics, the first thing we're going to see is the theme of celebrating God's sustaining grace. In the midst of these kind of great difficulties, God can and does sustain his children by grace. Look with me again here at verses 3, 4, and 5. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, meaning brothers and sisters, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing, which is precisely something he had prayed for them as he wrote 1 Thessalonians. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and your faith in all your persecutions and in all the afflictions. Afflictions is going to become an important word in the next section. In all the afflictions that you are enduring, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Here we read of Paul giving thanks to God for these believers. Indeed, he's going around to all the other churches and apparently bragging about them. He's celebrating with great joy what God is doing in, among them in the midst of their trials. I want to say a few more things about this, but we, let me re-say some things we've been saying throughout the summer to get the context again before us. I know every week throughout the summer people travel, there's visitors, even here this morning. Let me reset the context for you. So Paul on his missionary journeys, he's traveling across different parts of Asia Minor, and as he does so, he visits Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a port city, it's the capital of what was then Macedonia. It's in Greece today. Think of Macedonia, as I've said throughout the summer, like Boston or Baltimore, other port cities. Some 100,000 people live there. It was a large city at the time. There's industry, there's commerce. And Paul preached to these people the good news of Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his second coming. And they were changed. But because of persecution, Paul had to move on. And after Paul moved on, these young believers began to struggle. False teachers came in among them and began to undermine Paul's teaching and his character. And he was, they were stealing away the fragile assurance of these believers. So Paul sent his trusted ministry gospel partner friend and young pastor Timothy to go check on them. 
Timothy goes and he checks on them and he comes back and he reports to Paul that they're doing, in fact, quite well. But yet, they still have some things in their life they're, they're struggling with and they need more instruction in the gospel. So Paul writes 1 Thessalonians to them. Now I want to, I want to draw your attention to two verses here in 2 Thessalonians. This is our letter that we're studying here for the next few weeks. The verses I haven't read yet, we're going to come to in the coming weeks. But, but just look at, look at these verses and, and see some of the details in them. So this is chapter 2, verse 15. It's a short letter. You can flip there, put your finger on it if you like. Otherwise, it'll be on the screen. Chapter 2, verse 15, we read, So then, brothers, again, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught, either taught by us, he said, either by our spoken word or by our letter. By our letter. Okay? So this is Second Thessalonians, by our letter. He's referring to First Thessalonians. Right, so there's this relationship. We, we were there, we spoke the word of God to you, and we wrote you another letter to do the same, to encourage you to stand first. In fact, this letter he's writing now is going to be for that same purpose. Now, again, let your guys go down to chapter 3, 3 verse 11. We see this. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. And we're going to come to that theme in a few weeks. But I just, what the attention I want to put you on, on here is, right there at the start, those first three words, for we hear. Right? So like he wrote him a letter. <laughs> he wrote him a letter. First Thessalonians, and he wrote him another letter here. Second Thessalonians. And between those two letters, for we hear. What does that imply? There must have been a report that was given back to Paul about how they were doing after he wrote First Thessalonians. So there's these reports, there's this communication flowing between them. Now, we don't have that report. But I think we can presume, rightly, that the themes that are surfaced in Second Thessalonians are what would have been some of the substance of the report. Now, what, was, what were those themes? And we're just starting Second Thessalonians, so we haven't broached them yet. But, but, but let me just tell you what the three big themes, the three purposes of this second letter were. So when Paul says, for we hear, what were some of those things that he heard? Well, one was the unremitting suffering and persecution that they were undergoing. That's chapter one. Number two, the second thing they heard, and this really just falls out chapter one, two, and three. Chapter two is frankly a bizarre view of the end times. Uh, that they were holding. And we'll come to that next week a little bit. And then the third thing was that some had become lazy and idle. We don't know all the reasons why, but we'll begin exploring that as Paul did in chapter 3. So those are the three things. This unremitting suffering, a bizarre view of the end times, and uh, so it seems some were becoming lazy, drawing on the wealth of some of their more wealthy Christians among them. And so why do I bring all this up? Like, what's the point? Why, why bring all that now? We'll come to it in time. Why are you surfacing all that now? Well, to say this. Not only can suffering sometimes take your mind and heart to dark places, but also it's very possible, in fact, common for those who are experiencing suffering to feel like they have nothing to offer. Like they're just a burden to everybody. With that in mind, look again at verses 3 and 4. Look what Paul says to them. For we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. 
And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in all the churches of God. For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions. And in all the afflictions that you are enduring. Paul says, quote, we always give thanks to God for you. We ought, excuse me, we ought always. <laughs> he feels an obligation to do so because they're doing it so well. This group of Christians needed Paul's help. They're losing their assurance. They had a messed up view of the end times that was frankly bizarre. And some of them are getting lazy. But what does Paul do? Paul sees what they are doing well. And he celebrates the sustaining grace of God working among them. That's what he does. And what does that mean for us? When you and I see others among us, even specifically those who are new to Christianity, and they have a ton of things wrong in their lives. Sins and struggles, messed up theology, messed up home lives. Do we have the eyes to see what God is doing among them? And to smile. To encourage them. I mean, Paul didn't have to write to them. He could have moved on and found better believers, just like God could do with you and I. Go find a better church somewhere else. But Paul didn't forsake these young believers. More importantly, God didn't forsake them. And we shouldn't forsake those young believers or old believers among us who need our help. Need us to look back some of the drama, some of the struggles, and just say, I see God doing something beautiful in your life. I've been wondering this last week if Paul had a special love for those who were suffering persecution because he himself, before he was a Christian, spent some time persecuting Christians himself. Now, we don't know what that did to him. And the way he might have had a special love in his heart for those who were undergoing persecution. But we do know that's what he turns to next in this letter. He takes up persecution and affliction more specifically. But as he does so, he addresses those, I'll say it this way, there are those who are doing the afflicting, those who are doing the persecution. He's not so much talking to them. He's going to talk about them. What he's going to more so do is talk to those who are receiving the persecution about those who are doing the persecution. Or in the language of this passage, he's going to talk to those who are afflicted about those who have done the affliction. Speaking to believers, I'll explain, but let's read the verses and get them in front of us. Verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. It's picking up mid-sentence, so I'll just do the same thing. Verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, mighty angels, in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer, Paul writes, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Again, Paul's speaking not so much to those who are doing the affliction, but he's speaking about them to those who are receiving the affliction. Now to be sure, Paul says some troubling things here, doesn't he? 
Paul speaks of Jesus coming in flaming fire to inflict vengeance on those who do not know God or obey the gospel. He speaks of them suffering the punishment of eternal destruction, not just temporary destruction, but hell, it seems here from this passage, is as eternal in its torment as heaven is eternal in its joy. That's troubling. And Paul speaks of being kept away from, quote, the presence of the Lord in evangelical Christian jargon. We sometimes speak of a Christless eternity. Sometimes it's a euphemism. An eternity without Christ. That's true. At least hell is an eternity away from the, we read the presence of Christ, meaning the presence of his glorious grace, the presence of his joy, the presence of his laughter, the presence of his forgiveness, the presence of his love, and instead in the presence of his wrath. All this is, again, troubling. But I wonder if, again, as we look more deeply at the context, if the context here would help us again. Look at verse 6 one more time. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. You see, it's possible from a privileged and relatively justice-filled experience of life. To consider God cruel for judging those who don't know him. But what if, what if the pervading experience of our lives was one of injustice? And for some of you, you don't need the what if. Some of you have experienced great injustices. I would submit to you that while some of us might consider God cruel, For what he says he will do in this passage. I want to submit to you that those who first heard this passage. For those who first received this letter. Would have considered the opposite cruel. If God could watch injustice and not be moved. If God could watch his people wrongly afflicted. And there be no response. That would have been cruel to them. And they would have been right. We don't know exactly what form their persecution took. It seems later in the first century things really ramp up. But here at about 48, 49, 50 AD, things, I don't know the extent of of their persecution they were suffering. They were likely excluded from aspects of society. In Acts 17, when Paul was there, some were beaten. Some of them likely were placed in jail. We don't know if they were killed. But what they wanted to know was, is God watching? Does he see? And so it is today. When there is a mass shooting, when the powerful sexually abuse the weak, when there is genocide, people ask, where is God? This passage has an answer. God is in heaven storing up the winepresses of the fury of his wrath that will be poured out, says, in flaming fire on all who do not obey the gospel. That's where he is. He's keeping score. And when the game is over, no injustice will be unaccounted for. Either in the way sins were punished on the cross, on Jesus as he bore our sins, or in hell. 
At my former church, one of the police officers who attended was shot in the head while he was on duty. And he's alive. He actually visited us here after we first moved here. He and his family. He was good friends with her family and especially his son. But he was shot. And the doctors were not able to take out the bullet because they feared the damage it would cause to take it out. So this is a weird thing. He's got a bullet in his head the rest of his life. Now, he's okay. Um, but needless to say, he was in ICU for a long time. And during those days, I went to the hospital many times. I sat with his wife while hard decisions were made. And when the officer was better, I sat with him in the hospitals. I remember opening the Bible and he asked me what to do with those passages about forgiveness. <laughs> it's hard. The man who pulled the trigger was caught and convicted, but they didn't have enough evidence to convict him for the shooting. They had evidence for other lesser things. As you might imagine, that created a struggle for my friend. Struggle likely that if he strings together the right chain of thoughts in his mind and goes back to that season in life, I'm sure it's still not a struggle in the past, but a struggle very much in the present. And some of you have those things that happened in your life, perhaps an abuse, perhaps something else, that if you put together the right string of thoughts, then all of a sudden you're there again. I can tell you that for my friend, they could forgive eventually, in part because they knew God was the one who would ultimately deal with this wrong. In some ways, that's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is saying that, God, you are the judge of the universe, and therefore I can release people from crucifying them myself. There's a quote attributed to Martin Luther King Jr. that says, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. I don't know exactly what he meant by that. He seems to be channeling some things that were said by others before, but I can imagine what an encouragement that truth might have been for him and others. And though Jesus has been long in coming, when he comes, there will be justice. I know a pastor who told me about a sermon he preached during seminary. He told me that the professor, after he was done, he said, uh, you did an okay job. <laughs> uh, you did a pretty good job, though, of taking your audience down. <laughs> um, but I don't know that you really succeeded in bringing them back up again. That's the <laughs> nice, nice feedback, professor. In other words, he was able to bring up some really heavy thing that's in the introduction to his sermon and throughout the sermon, but he's not really able to share the gospel sufficiently in such a way as the answer being the gospel was able to actually recover. (laughs) People were kind of still left with a downer. I don't know if when you leave here this morning, you're going to say the same thing about my sermon (laughs) that that professor said about my friend's sermon. I hope not, which is why we have the privilege of sharing in communion together here in a few minutes to reflect on the love of God for Christians. Relentless suffering can take our mind to dark places, but it's into that darkness. First, Second Thessalonians chapter 2 shines the light of the gospel. 
and the hope of the second coming. Jesus is coming again and he will make all things new. He will wipe away every tear from everyone's eyes that trusts him and loves him. Look at the way Paul ends this passage in hope. Verses 10, 11, and 12. When he comes, Paul writes, when Jesus comes on that day, the day of the Lord, the day of the trumpet, to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because of our testimony to you as believed, to that end, we pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. In the passage, another way to translate it might be among you and in you and him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's so many things in this passage we don't have time to cover. What did it mean in verse 5 about evidence of God's righteous judgment? What does it mean about how does God make every resolve for good? And whose resolve for good is it? Is it our good resolve for good? Or is it God's resolve for good? Or is it both? There's so many things we don't have time to cover. But let me just cover one thing. One little detail that's interesting and beautiful to me. Paul says in verse 10, Marvel at. Marvel. When Jesus comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to, quote, be marveled at among all who had believed. Paul is saying this because Jesus is awesome. (laughs) And to believe in Jesus is to see his awesomeness. And to see his awesomeness is to marvel. To be in awe at the splendor of his power, the glory of his grace, the fullness of his justice, the extravagance of his forgiveness. Think about this more. It's often pointed out that when angels show up in the Bible, everybody gets afraid. That's just what happens in the Bible. Uh, Book of Judges chapter 13, uh, angels appear to Samson's parents and they're afraid. When the uh, shepherds announce the good news of great joy, right? Luke chapter 2, the birth of the Messiah. What does it say about those shepherds? They're afraid. First words of the angels, do not be afraid. Whenever angels show up in the Bible, every human is always afraid. Now, why does that matter? Why is that interesting? In verse 7, we read that Jesus, when he shows up, he's going to be revealed from heaven, quote, with his mighty angels. Not only is Jesus not afraid of mighty angels, But we're told that they are his mighty angels. The submissive, obedient entourage of Jesus at the second coming are angelic beings who by themselves would make us afraid. But they come in tow with the Savior doing his will because of how marvelous Jesus is. They serve him. Let angels prostrate fall. We sang at the beginning of our worship service, and they do, and we will, as we marvel. In a world, as I said earlier this summer, that offers no sturdy hope for life after death, when the trumpet sounds, the Lord will return. And even if you have been in the grave for a thousand years, God the Father will raise you with the same power He raised His Son from the dead. In a world where no medicine 
No spiritual guru, no health regimen can keep you from preventing your own death. Jesus will come with a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise. In a world Where everything eventually good ends, our best joys end, our best experiences end, all of our best relationship ends. In a world where everything good ends, this passage encourages us that when Christ comes again, we will marvel at his return because his return will be the marvelous answer to every longing we've ever had and the fulfillment of every joy I'm going to close by reading a passage about the Lord's Supper from the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians 11. Then I'll pray and I'll invite the worship team up and we'll celebrate together. Look at what Paul says to another church about the Lord's Supper, really to us as well. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night When he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me, remembering all of me, all of my love, all of my grace, all of my gospel, all of my forgiveness, all of my hope for the future, all of my healing, resurrection power for you in remembrance of me and all of that. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, all of me, all of my grace, all of my glory. Now mark this. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim what? The Lord's death until he comes. By coming forward and taking the bread, taking the juice. We're looking all each, everyone in the eye and saying, He's coming. He's coming. He's coming again. And it will be marvelous. I'm going to pray and invite the worship team to come up. If you were asked to come, um, be one of the ushers to stand up front if you would do that now as well. I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, We thank you that you are Jesus Messiah. That you rule and reign over all of history from the throne of the universe. You are not weak and inept. You are not caught off guard by the tragedies in our lives. And when we grieve, and when we are confused, when we are anxious, when we hurt, you move towards us. You surround us with your love. Lord, I pray as we celebrate communion together, you would encourage our hearts and strengthen us in grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.